0: Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from canvas to screen on select Saturdays in March. Enjoy a film that captures the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art, including Metropolis, Days of Heaven, and Marie Antoinette at NortonSimon.org. Come see the new quiz show,
1: Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and fresh airs Tanya Mosley.
2: It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at LAS.com events.
1: Good morning, it's AirTalk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope you're having a good start to your week. Sounds like traffic uh, not as uh, dire as had been feared with the closure of the 10 freeway south of downtown Los Angeles between the East LA interchange and Alameda Street. You just heard some of the latest uh, in Suzanne Watley's local update. But joining us, public information officer at Caltrans District 7, Michael Como, to talk about the latest um, what comes next. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. What's planned in the way of inspection for that damaged portion of the elevated freeway?
3: Hi Larry, Uh, happy to be with you. Uh, Yes, the inspections have already started. Now, the inspection work is going to accelerate and expand once the hazmat crews have cleared out out enough of the hazardous materials, but the engineers have only limited access right now. Uh, Specifically regarding testing, uh, yesterday, uh, early morning, um, materials were gathered and sent to a lab for testing to um, to determine the structural strength of the concrete and steel that was exposed to the fire. Um, that is guiding our engineers as they continue making their assessments about the extent of the damage. Then they will be able to recommend the degree of repairs or replacement that is necessary, and from there. A work plan will be developed to um, set out the timeline uh, for these repairs or replacement, and how that work will actually be done.
1: We can see the blackening of the the concrete of the freeway, the guardrails that melted, and um, you you can just see the intensity of the fire. Yeah, are there places, to your knowledge, where the actual concrete has come off of, of the steel structure of, of those pylons for the bridge?
3: Yes, there are many areas where the concrete has been flaking off, where chunks of concrete have been falling off. It remains to be seen whether these, this is cosmetic damage or whether this is damage to the structural integrity of the structure of the bridge itself. There are places where you can see chunks of concrete have fallen off due to the intensity of the fire, and you can see the exposed metal beams, what we call rebar, steel reinforcing rods, that are inside the columns that hold up the bridge as well as the bridge deck, which is the top flat part that the cars actually travel over.
1: Now I, 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 I don't oh go ahead, I'm sorry.
3: Uh, it's okay. Uh, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say I, I don't expect you're an engineer, but I don't I was just wondering if you knew how they do that testing to determine the integrity of the steel.
3: It's taken to a lab here in LA. Um, I don't know about the steel. One of the very interesting things about concrete is concrete actually gets stronger over time. So the age of the bridge itself, uh, don't let that fool you. Sections of the concrete might be very strong, and that is subjected to tests, uh, pressure tests to see how much force it will accept. Some of it may be uh, quite significantly damaged and will have to be reconstructed or replaced, but that is the, the point of the testing and further evaluation that's going on right now and has been going on since the fire.
1: Who owns the land underneath the elevated freeway there where the land was apparently rented out for storage, including the wood pallets?
3: The state of California owns the land. uh, Caltrans, as the State Department of Transportation, is responsible for managing and overseeing the, the use of that property. Many, many areas are rented. We call those airspace leases. They're under elevated sections of freeways. They And they are uh, rented in many, many locations.
1: We know, though, the pallet fires break out quite commonly in pallet lots. Um, is, is that allowed to have wooden pallets right under an elevated uh, freeway bridge?
3: Um, I do know from the governor's press conference on Sunday that uh, uh, the governor pointed out that litigation is already underway regarding previous concerns at this location. Because there's litigation happening at this location, we wouldn't have uh, a lot to say at this moment regarding regarding this specific site, but there are specifications and limitations on what can be done and for what purpose are areas being released. And those are uh, monitored and uh, enforcement actions, if necessary, are being taken. And as in this case, which has resulted in litigation.
1: Michael, thank you. I know you're extremely busy this morning. Really appreciate your giving us some time today.
3: Thank you. You're welcome, Larry.
1: Thank you. Public Information Officer, Caltrans District 7, which covers Southern California, Michael Como with us. He just mentioned the governor's address yesterday in which a state of emergency was declared because of the closure of this stretch of the 10 Freeway. And he referenced the major repairs that had to be done when a section of the 10 Freeway collapsed much farther west in the Northridge earthquake.
0: The bonuses that were assessed in Northridge were on the basis day in and day out of the daily economic costs to the region. We can certainly assess they'll be substantially greater than they were in 1994. 300 plus thousand vehicles go through this corridor every single day.
1: And then Mayor Bass at her news conference yesterday talked as well about the massive repair job and how it was done so expeditiously.
4: For those of you that remember the 1994 Northridge earthquake, Caltrans worked around the clock to complete emergency repairs to the freeways, and this structural damage calls for the same level of urgency and effort.
1: All right, so we'll see what happens again. It's still being determined the extent of the damage to the elevated portions of the 10 south of downtown Los Angeles, but... In the case of the full reconstruction, the demolition of what fell during the Northridge earthquake and then the reconstruction of that stretch through West Los Angeles— All of that was done in an incredibly short period of time. Joining us now, Chief Operating Officer at L.A. Metro, Conan Chung. Thank you, Conan, for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Um, Please share with us what Metro has done to beef up public transit to handle uh, people uh, who go through this area.
5: Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, We do have several services that run parallel to the 10 freeway. We have the Metro E line, which runs for about 22 miles between Santa Monica and East LA, and essentially parallels the the freeway. Uh, We have 29 stations on that line, so you can find the station that's close to you. Uh, Many of them have park and ride lots. You can park your car there and then get onto the train. We're running every 10 minutes uh, with three car trains, so it provides sufficient capacity. We'll continue to monitor the capacity on that and add service as we need to. Uh, for the north-south services coming from downtown Long Beach all the way up to Azusa, paralleling, paralleling the uh, 210 freeway on the north end, uh, we have the A line, and that's almost 50 miles of service with 44 stations. In addition to that, we do run a J line, the Silver Line, which comes from El Monte station and goes down the Harbor, uh, the Harbor Freeway, as well as the uh, El Monte Expressway on the 10. Uh, freeway, and that provides uh, expeditious service from El Monte Station all the way to downtown L.A., into Union Station and through downtown L.A., again, connecting back to the 110 freeway going all the way south to Harbor Gateway Transit Center, as well as San Pedro. That service runs every five minutes. Uh, that actually is uh, in parallel with Foothill Transit Silver Streak service, which also runs on the El Monte Expressway. Uh, from Almani station actually Montebello I believe through El Monte station on the expressway all the way into downtown LA. So that provides big okay. service coming into downtown LA. Uh, we do have services that do parallel the specific uh, uh, location on the 10 freeway where the fire did occur and those include uh, some of the services down there on Olympic Avenue uh, as well as the services. Uh, On 6th Street, which would be the 66th line and the 18th line.
1: Conan, I know it's very early, but are you able to determine whether you've seen ridership up this morning as a result of of demand to get around the freeway closure?
5: We don't have that data right now, but we are monitoring throughout the day so we should be able to report out uh, perhaps tomorrow on today's ridership.
1: All right. I'd love to hear from listeners what your experience was if you went through that corridor this morning, maybe you took the detours around the closed section of the 10 freeway between Alameda and the East LA interchange. I'd love to hear what that experience was like, how much of a delay it was for you if you're in that area now and you're working your way around the freeway closure. Please share your experience with us at 866 893 and that's of course only only if you are able to call us safely, hands-free, 866-893-5722. We don't want you to endanger yourself, but if you can safely call and share what your experience either was like earlier this morning or is currently going through that corridor, we appreciate it. 866-893-5722. Conan, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you sharing with us what the beefed-up Metro offerings are to get around this area. Is that going to be available tomorrow, too?
5: Yes, we'll continue to provide that service. And again, as I mentioned, we are going to be monitoring our ridership. Uh, we are actually working hand in hand with LADOT as well to try to improve the speed and reliability of our uh, A and the E lines uh, going through the intersection to provide people, again, more expeditious service.
1: Thank you so much. That's Conan Chung, the Chief Operating Officer at L.A. Metro. We just talked a few minutes ago about the extraordinary reconstruction of the portion of the 10 freeway that collapsed in the Northridge earthquake of 1994. In that case, a bonus of more than $14 million was offered to C.C. Myers Construction Company um, if they could bring it in ahead of deadline. And boy, did it was six weeks early that that it was completed. At the center of that whole project was then Los Angeles City Councilmember Zev Yaroslavsky went on to be on the L.A. County Board of Supervisors now at UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs where he directs the L.A. Initiative. Zev, thank you so much for being with us this morning. You write about this in your new memoir. And um, just, you know, how that was an amazing engineering and construction feat to get that back up. How did they do it so fast?
6: Well, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and uh, although I appreciate the compliment, uh, I wasn't at the center of it. I was on the periphery of it because I represented part of the Santa Monica Freeway at the time. Uh, Pete Wilson, Governor Pete Wilson, was really the the architect of this along with uh, Mayor Reardon. uh, And what what, uh, Governor Wilson did, uh, because the highway is uh, under the jurisdiction of Caltrans, uh, was to suspend all of the normal regulations and regulatory requirements to to uh to do any construction on a on a freeway and uh and then to give as you said the the bonus to the contractor for every day they come in ahead of schedule they they got a big bonus and so the motivation was uh was clear and and everyone was behind it. Uh, it was worth it for the community and for the region to have this done, to pay the money to have it accelerated and to suspend a lot of the uh, non-essential regulatory requirements so that this... Project could be done in, in, in a little over a month when it would have taken several months otherwise. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's may Well, and I was looking at that like fourteen and a half million dollar bonus. I know it's almost thirty years ago, but that's so tiny co- compared to the savings to the local economy of having it up six weeks earlier than than expected.
6: Absolutely, uh, and you know the 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 I ten the Santa Monica Freeway is I believe still the the busiest freeway in the region uh it, it, if not it's it's second and uh and it's it's incredibly important to the economy of the region first of all for people to get to and from work uh and uh, and and secondly uh be, because uh, of the uh, the truck traffic and the, the deliveries and all that all goes along with with our economy and we take it for granted until we don't have it and uh you know when that when that uh, part of the freeway it was near Robertson uh between Los Las Vegas and Robertson boulevards uh, when that collapsed uh the, the first reaction was what are we what are we going to do this is armageddon but uh but I, I will give the, the credit uh, to uh, Governor Wilson and, okay. and uh, Dick Reardon who was the mayor. They they uh, thought outside the box, and uh, and everybody got behind it. And I would really yeah. encourage people to use the public transportation and to adjust their schedules to be part of the solution in the in the interim.
1: We of course have a more robust public transit system than we did 28, 29 years ago. But um, we have
6: the Expo Line now yeah. that we did not have then. Yeah, and that's yeah. a big. It's a big uh, alternative. Transportation mode.
1: Zev, thank you so much. We appreciate, it. and again, we don't know what kind of repairs are going to be necessary for the damaged portion of the Elevated Ten Freeway south of downtown Los Angeles. We know there's damage. We heard from uh, the Caltrans uh, District Seven spokesman about uh, just the the flaking off of chunks of concrete, exposing the the steel structure underneath. So we know there's there's extensive damage. The question is, are they going to be able to patch it, to, to repair it? Um, you know, certainly hope they're not going to have to, to, to bring it down and rebuild it. We're just going to have to see what happens. And, of course, at this point, they're testing for any toxic substances that are there that have to be remediated. Muffy in Boyle Heights uh, works in uh, the East L.A. interchange area. Muffy, what are the streets like there? In uh, what were they like as, as you were getting to work this morning?
7: Well, clogged, incredibly clogged. We have terrible traffic here anyway, and the streets are in terrible disrepair anyway. And I'm hoping that this incident is going to bring more attention to this community, which really needs a lot of attention because it's historically ignored, even though it's one of the oldest parts of the city.
1: And I understand you still haven't gotten to work. Is that right? You left at... Where did you leave at 8.30, and and how close are you to your workplace?
7: I live in Altadena, and typically in traffic, it takes me 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes to Mm -hmm. get to work, and I take the 110 and the five and virtually every street that i normally take like mission and euclid and everything is backed up and my office tells me that the traffic on our street union pacific and on olympic are a parking lot today
1: so you this still got
7: alternate street
1: so you've still got a few miles to go it sounds like to get to your office is that right
7: i'm within a, i'm finally within a mile okay
1: Good luck for the last mile. Muffy, thank you for sharing your ordeal, getting to work taking twice as long as it would typically to get to your office because of of how heavily impacted the traffic is from that closure. Again, the 10 freeway closed indefinitely between the East L.A. Interchange and Alameda Street. We'll have continuing coverage, including a news conference from Caltrans District 7 headquarters in downtown Los Angeles coming up. Next hour on air talk. When we come back on this Science Monday throughout LAist, we're going to be talking on Climate Monday about the Woolsey Fire five years ago. It did massive destruction took lives and led to uh, the hundreds of thousands of people evacuated. We'll look back on that event and also what the rain later this week might mean for our fire risk this season in Southern California. We'll be back with our science correspondent Jacob Margolis in just a minute.
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org.
4: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderón Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
1: It's Air Talk on LA. It's 89.3. Coming up in just a few minutes, I talk with Molly Guptill Manning. Author of the new book, The War of Words, How America's GI Journalists Battled Censorship and Propaganda to Help Win World War II. The stories in this book are absolutely incredible, and it shows to the lengths people will go to provide journalism that's absolutely essential, in this case for those right on the front lines of World War II with uncensored Unvarnished journalism. But right now we turn our attention to my colleague, LAS journalist Jacob Margolis, science reporter with us. Jacob, it's Climate Monday. We get to do a series every Monday on what's happening in climate. Today we look back on the tragic Wolsey fire five years ago, not just deadly, but I can't remember that many people at one time being evacuated from a Southern California fire
2: was tons. I mean, and, and that had to do with how fast it moved and where it moved through. So for a reminder, although I'm sure a lot of you remember, it moved from uh, basically the back of Chatsworth, Simi area, all the way to the ocean in less than 24 hours. And that is fast, uh, blown, obviously, by very strong winds.
1: Nearly 300,000 people yeah. were evacuated. And as yeah. you said, it happened, it happened so fast. I was just, even the time we were on the air in the mm-hmm. morning, when I was hearing the progress of the fire, it was it was incredible how the wind was just pushing it.
2: Yeah. And the problem, obviously, with where it ran as well was you have all these communities tucked into very kind of mountainous and canyon, sort of canyon areas that are hard to get out of. So that obviously raised the risk, too. And you also had the Hill Fire that was burning the day before nearby that had jumped the 101. And in Northern California, you had the Camp Fire, uh, which obviously destroyed the town of Paradise, killed over more than 80 people. And so every we were just maxed out across the state
1: yeah trying to fight all those fronts Absolutely. at the same time incredibly difficult Um, But talk a little bit about what we learned from Mm -hmm. the Woolsey Fire because in in all of these tragedies, there are things learned.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I put together a list for LAs, which people go and check out on las.com. But I want to talk about some of them. For me, the biggest, sort of the biggest thing that changed because I grew up in this area and like you, I vividly remember the Woolsey Fire. Um, I I think the thing, the biggest thing it taught us was that we now understood, we then understood how bad fires can get. I think Thomas showed us the year before, if you remember, it was the largest in the state at the time. It showed us, oh, wow, these these are, these are can get pretty big. They can run into January with drought conditions. But Woolsey was just so violent alongside the campfire that we were like, OK, this is, this is a new normal and it is quite scary. And then along with that came uh, a demonstration of just how limited our firefighting infrastructure could be, um, which I'm happy to talk more about. And uh, it really also pushed a lot of people because it was so scary and it challenged so much of what we already knew uh it pushed normal people to kind of want to step up and do stuff on their own which i which i've written some pieces about
1: and the other thing jacob is just how long it's taken to rebuild yeah. many of those houses i i from time to time drive that stretch of Mulholland highway i go through there and look mm-hmm. to see what's happened a lot of people put RVs on their property mm-hmm. while reconstruction was being done and you know whenever you've got fire that destroyed how, how many was it almost 1700 structures yeah. um uh, a high percentage of them homes. The problem is just getting enough person power to rebuild houses, the number of people that it takes, plus all the insurance factors and everything. It's, it turns people's lives upside down in addition to the trauma of the event itself.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you if you have insurance, you hopefully will get enough of a payout to be able to turn around and go rebuild. That's still going to take years. Now, the settlement could take even longer if it's, say, a power company like this with SoCal Edison that started the fire for you to get that money. And then, obviously, if you don't have insurance and maybe there's no settlement, which has happened to some people, um, you know, you're know, you not going to be made whole by the federal government, which max, max is like, I think, $30,000 or so that you're going to get from FEMA. And so that's certainly not going to help you rebuild build a house in Southern California.
1: We're talking with science reporter for LA as Jacob Margolis. We're talking about five years after the disastrous Woolsey fire what we've learned and what's happened to the brush in that area mm-hmm. as well, because there's there's been high risk of uh, slides and of, mm-hmm. um, you know, mud and debris flows from that area.
2: Yeah. I mean, we've seen some level of regrowth, certainly. Um, you know, laurel sumac is kind of the first plant amongst chaparral to come back. You have a lot of grass growth, though, and that kind of becomes the bigger concern in these ecosystems after they burn through. And so when you get that inv- those invasive grasses that come back right away, they can carry fire a lot faster than uh, the native chaparral or coastal sage scrub can recover itself. And so the big problem we're running into, and we've talked about this before, is the fire return interval becomes so short that the native plants, uh, it's called type conversion. They basically go away and the invasive grasses are then there.
1: Uh, I, I have a difficult relationship with Laurel Sumac. When I was a kid, yeah. and and my parents bought a house in Beechwood Canyon, mm-hmm. Hollywood Hills, our 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 almost vertical slope was full wow. of it, and I had to go out with with my parents and pull out Laurel Sumac. <laughs> oh, and yeah. make that. So I feel like I've wrestled with Laurel. I've done you know fifteen rounds with Laurel Sumac uh, over the course of my life. If you have questions for Jacob about things that we've learned from the Woolsey Fire five years later, we're at eight six. Six eight nine three five seven two two. When you were with us before, you were talking about the attempt to build fire-resistant homes. Mm-hmm. It's probably not fair to say any home is fireproof. Yeah. Um, we see the old hotels downtown Los Angeles fireproof on the side <laughs> of it. We know, of course, there's no such yeah. thing. But um, what's your sense of how you know codes have have reacted to the spate of fires?
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of it comes down to they've certainly. Um There are specific requirements for certain areas that are high risk in the state. That said, a lot of those places, if they are within a specific municipality, so I'm thinking, for instance, Coffee Park in the Santa Rosa area, because we did this uh, for the podcast, whether they basically rebuilt Coffee Park park exactly the same and it, so it could very much burn just like it did in the Tubbs fire a few years ago and that was because the city council decided not to institute stricter building codes in that area and so it depends on where you're talking about but in state responsibility areas it's going to be a bit different than local building areas and like la county will require different stuff than la city so it's kind of a jumbled mess however the number one thing clear brush and obviously uh you know.
1: Well, on the code issue, it's always the expense for the homeowner because you don't want it to be so burdensome that it's difficult for people to rebuild, mm-hmm. nor do you want history to repeat itself. Well, that,
2: and that's what happened in Coffee Park. They said, look, we, we have all these displaced people. We need to get them back right away. Uh, but, you know, they did just about everything wrong.
1: Uh, Jacob, let's uh, talk about the rain that's forecast yeah. later this week. Uh, I don't know what the latest is. I heard a couple inches possible in Yeah, Montreal, it's, eh?
2: it's looking like through uh, between Wednesday and Saturday, uh, one to three inches, maybe a little more up in the mountains, but nothing catastrophic. Uh, I haven't had my roof replaced yet, so I hope it's, <laughs> I hope it's not too strong. <laughs> I'm trying Our to get one more leaking. year out of mine. <laughs> yeah. It's been leaking for a while now. Uh, we need to get it fixed. So, um, you know, hope, hope. I don't think it'll be too intense, though.
1: Yeah. Uh, and and, and what does this mean for fire season? Mm-hmm. Because any rain this time of year, when we're prone to Santa Ana winds, obviously good news.
2: Yeah, it is good news. I called uh, I called around and I asked, is this enough to kind of do it for us? And the answer was probably not. Um, I certainly think it'll help. Uh, what they generally look for is between like three to five inches of widespread rain across the region to call an end to it. Now, The difference this year is that we had that tropical storm Hillary that came through. So we still have some remnant moisture from that. The problem is when the Santa Ana winds come through, they look at a number of different things. They look at soil moisture, live fuel moisture, and dead fuel moisture. Dead fuel laying on the ground can dry out in a number of hours. And so, you know, I I think it'll be heavily attenuated, but we can't say it's over yet. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and um, this is, my understanding is this is more than we typically get from this time of year. Mm-hmm. What we're expected to get this week is kind of like what we would get in a January uh, storm that comes through. So so yeah. that is good, but not so much as to, you know, cause debris flows.
2: Yeah, it's about three weeks earlier than our rainy season typically starts. But, you know, uh, I'm still a little concerned because until we have a consistent rainy season like we did last year, we have had previous years where it rained in December and then nothing else yeah, came. Yeah. And so, you know, we just hold on to our hats and hope for the best.
1: So are are the, are the models still showing with the El Nino that we are likely to have a wetter than typical rainy season this year?
2: Yeah, it's typical with El Nino that that happens. It's it's yes, it's it leans towards wet here in southern Cal- central and southern California. Um and what we can see is actually that El Nino is likely influencing this event. So uh, because of warm waters in the eastern tropical Pacific, it's likely pushed the storm track kind of I believe it's it's influenced it more towards us. And then also warm waters between California and Hawaii are kind of can, are potentially juicing the atmospheric river a bit more. Because those warm waters, more water goes into the atmosphere as it evaporates, and, uh, you know, it essentially feeds that atmospheric river that blasts into us. So, uh, you know... It'll take a retrospective and some and some studies done probably to say for sure, but it looks like that is likely the case.
1: You were mentioning earlier about concerns about the, the grasses that, mm-hmm. that come up after fires. And um, so if that's not necessarily a risk this year, I assume if we're looking at a dry year after we've had a couple of wet years, mm-hmm then the risk is all the higher, isn't it? Because you got so much fuel at ground level.
2: Yeah. I mean, at this point, I just think it's like every year, even if, yes, the answer is yes. Um, but I feel like we've seen catastrophic fire uh, drought year after drought year. And so again, I just I just hope that doesn't happen. Uh, another change, by the way, that I wanted to mention really yeah. quickly, that LA County fire, along with Orange County and Ventura County put into place that I actually think is kind of neat, is the uh, quick reaction force that they put together. I think it's partially funded by SoCal Edison. which which was responsible for the Woolsey fire, and um, what they have are these CH forty-seven, the big Chinooks, the uh, you know the big helicopters that have the I think like the two blades on them. Um, they could drop like three thousand gallons of water or retardant. Um, they have these quick, these kind of like these crews waiting twenty four seven to basically go. And so they have now gone to this place of we need to hit fires as fast as possible, and we're going to do it with a special team in addition to our regular kind of first alarm brush assignments. Well,
1: this is great news, Jacob, because we've seen so many of these massive fires start and go for an extended period unfought. And, Mm -hmm. you know, during a time when had there been quick response, Mm -hmm. they could have been extinguished, but, you know, have gotten away in high winds. So the idea that they can quickly get that volume of water onto a fire is definitely good news.
2: Absolutely. And we talked recently about a fire, potential fire. In Topanga running from the valley to the yeah. ocean that they have 10 minutes to hit it if it's a high wind day before it could potentially blow through in a number of yeah, hours.
1: Yeah, time is, is everything in the fight. Thank you so much, Jacob, as Thanks, always. Larry. We appreciate you joining us on Climate Monday. Yeah. and you can read the work that he's telling us about at las.com and his piece five years after devastating woolsey fire here's what's changed and of course Jacob also writing about uh, our first storm of the winter season coming in a bit early and uh, one to three inches of rain forecast in Metro LA with perhaps some uh, more rainfall at higher elevations coming up on air talk we'll speak with law professor and author Molly Guptal Manning her new book the Of words, how America's GI journalists battled censorship and propaganda to help win World War II back in 90 seconds.
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org.
4: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
1: It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Reminder that we're planning to bring you the live news conference at 10 o'clock or thereafter, shortly thereafter, uh, from downtown Los Angeles on the intense fire that's damaged a portion of Interstate 10 and close down that area south of downtown Los Angeles. We'll have the very latest from Caltrans. If you heard our conversation earlier with the Caltrans District 7 spokesperson, he explained how right now they're checking for hazardous material that might have been exposed as a result of the concrete chunks falling off from the intense fire that happened very early on Saturday morning. So they're testing that, and then they've got to figure out what kind of damage was done to this. Steel uh, frame of that, and those big I beams uh, that the concrete is around. So we hope to get more details on that in about 25 minutes or so. But we turn our attention right now to on-the-ground journalism in the most literal sense. The new book, "The War of Words: How America's GI Journalists Battled Censorship and Propaganda to Help Win World War II," is written by uh, our our guest Molly Manning, who is an associate professor of Law at New York Law School, but uh, fascinated by this story, largely untold of how uh, enlisted uh, journalists uh, told the stories of what they saw during the war. Molly, thank you for being with us.
8: Thank you so much for having me today.
1: I hadn't heard about that. I you know, I'd heard about some of the uh, more formal publications, but one of the things that you write about here is there were all kinds of little publications super targeted to those that were involved in, in very specific fronts of the war.
8: Exactly. I think when we think of world war II in journalism, we often think of newspapers like the stars and stripes, um, which were, publications that served the entire military. Um, But during World War II, there were actually little publications for practically every unit uh, and division in the military. Uh, Over 4,600 unique newspapers were printed by and for the troops. And so they could tell their own stories, make sense of what they saw, um, and make sure that, you know, whether a civilian correspondent made it to their little... Um, area or not, uh, somebody would be keeping a record and and making sure that their history was kept and told.
1: You've got an incredible photo on the jacket of the book of uh, a soldier with a typewriter perched precariously. Both he and, and the typewriter are, are on this sheer drop-off. He's got a, a rock holding down his his um, story that, that is coming out of the typewriter. I mean, this is like a death-defying story, but really illustrates the kinds of risks that these journalists took.
8: You're absolutely right. Um, newspapers were being produced in the most unlikely places, whether that was on uh, a rocky mountain in the middle of Italy or sometimes in caves in the Pacific. Um, And they set up in caves because if there was a bombing, their equipment wouldn't get wrecked. Um, Troops really, it meant everything to them to be able to publish these newspapers. Um, And they carried typewriters and mimeograph machines and paper and ink every which way that they went.
1: Well, it gives you a sense of how newspapers were such a huge part of American life generally that um, the, uh, you know, GIs would want to have this kind of a a news service available to them as they thought. They got letters that could be censored, you know, from home, but this was something where their peers could share what their experiences were in a way that I'm sure that they longed for.
8: Yes, and, you know when they receive letters from home, I think relatives meant well by sending news clippings sometimes um, because maybe there was a report in a, in a newspaper at home about a certain battle that involved uh, a loved one's division or unit. Um, but what troops uh, got very frustrated with was that these accounts often didn't feel like they told the whole story or they minimized casualties or Um, They didn't seem to report the war as fully as they would have liked, and so sometimes troops started printing newspapers because they felt that they needed to make sure the whole story was told, or, you know, if a buddy uh, was injured or there was casualties that felt personal, they wanted to dignify uh, the sacrifice that their friends um, underwent uh, by publishing a story about it and really giving Uh, their unit and their fellow soldiers, their full due.
1: Just in the few years of World War II, uh, Molly uh, documents over 4,600 different GI publications printed around the world, many of them from the two primary theaters of World War II. How is it that they were able to operate without any censorship from military brass?
8: Well, initially, there was supposed to be full censorship of these newspapers. And in fact, um, well, the way that it worked was that if a unit wanted to print their own newspaper, they would contact the War Department and they would request what they called a printing kit. And the printing kit would show up and it would be in a giant wooden crate, and it would have uh, a mimeograph machine and typewriters, paper, and ink. But part of one condition of getting the kit was that you were supposed to mail every newspaper that you printed back to Washington so that Washington would see what you were printing and they'd kind of be able to keep tabs on you. But it turned out that these newspapers, it was such a popular um, thing for soldiers to, to undertake that within about a month or two, the War Department issued a... Um, a news release just saying, please don't send us any more newspapers because we're absolutely inundated. And so the amount of oversight ended up dwindling um, almost immediately. And so whatever censorship existed would be local censorship, meaning uh, a unit sensor or a division sensor that would look at the newspaper. Um, but what's interesting is that most of the time, the censor would just say that you couldn't mail the newspaper home if there was anything sensitive in it. Um, but otherwise, troops, many troops were able to print whatever they wanted. Um, and so there was a remarkable amount of freedom of expression coming out of these papers.
1: They had titles such as Scars and Gripes, Bullsheet, Fubar, Sorryberg Gazette, Homewrecker, some very creative names here.
8: They did, um, you know, they wanted to come up with a name that kind of suited the men who are reading the paper or paid homage to the type of jobs that they were doing. Um, like one of my favorites is uh, a paper that was put out by a parachute division, uh, and they called their newspaper, The Screamer. <laughs> um, and so they they really wanted to make the papers um, just as true to their experiences as they could. And they started with the names that they came up with.
1: We're talking with Professor Molly Guptill Manning, author of The War of Words, How America's GI Journalists Battled Censorship and Propaganda to Help Win World War II. Uh, we'll uh, take your calls as well if you have questions for her about the research she did for the book. We're at 866 uh, 893 And with that in mind, what archives did you tap for doing your research?
8: So, it turns out that these newspapers are scattered all across the nation. Um, One of the main ones that I looked at was the Army Heritage Center in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, They have a huge um, inventory of these newspapers. Um, Sometimes I would also just speak with World War II veterans. And if they knew what I was researching, it turns out that many of them kept copies of their troop newspapers. And so sometimes they would give me photocopies of of the papers that they kept.
1: Do you know, do you know if during uh, the Vietnam War, there were similar efforts to do these sort of unit by unit newspapers?
8: There were some newspapers de- during Vietnam, not nearly as many as during World War Two. Um, and if we go back to Korea, there were also um, many troop newspapers that were still being published. Um, but now it's obviously fallen by the wayside. Um, I'm told that troops today tend to have private Facebook groups, and that's how they kind of keep um, keep tabs on what's going on.
1: Makes sense. We'll continue with Professor Manning when we come back, The War of Words: How America's GI Journalists Battled Censorship and Propaganda to Help Win World War II. It's Air Talk on LA 89.3. As I've mentioned on the program before, I've, I've gone through some of my family's artifacts and found just boxes of letters that my grandmother and grandfather exchanged during World War II. He was a physician in the Navy uh, serving on a on a ship. Um, he was also the social director for the ship as well as being the physician, and uh, they, they wrote back very impassioned letters uh, to each other. Which obviously is a very important part of of those in the service going through the kinds of very difficult circumstances they did during the war. But as our guest Molly Manning describes in her book, The War of Words, there were also newspapers done by the GIs themselves for their fellow GIs uh, that were much uh, more unvarnished than what you would see in Stars and Stripes, which served uh, all of the military, or uh, certainly what you you would see back here in the States in the way of coverage of the war. I'm curious if, if you as a listener have come across any of these publications, perhaps that have been kept by uh, a family members of, of yours that served during World War II. I'd be interested in in hearing what it is, if you recall. We're at 866-893-5722. Um, Molly, it's funny. I didn't realize that um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning political cartoonist Bill Malden actually got his start in in this kind of a publication.
8: That's absolutely correct. Um, he began on his local paper, so to speak, for his division, the 45th division. Um, and he was creating cartoons that just showed how you know, miserable some of the experiences they had were. Um, and he really believed that by making a cartoon and having, you know, a punchline that allowed the troops to laugh at their circumstances. It gave them a a form of catharsis and it helped them um, deal with the hardships and and the difficulties that they faced uh, and carry on. Um, Not everybody agreed with him. He had a very famous incident with uh, George Patton um, because uh, Malden ended up drawing cartoons that made fun of some of Patton's requirements that troops even in combat zones remain shaved and that they keep their uniforms you know, in perfect hmm. condition and, and things like that. And so Malden made a cartoon saying, well, I guess we're going to have to do a 2,000 mile detour around this area because his famous characters, Willie and Joe, they grew beards and they had tattered uniforms and um, they were filthy all the time because they were in a combat zone. Um, and, and George Patton had Bill Malden uh, come to him and explain uh, how it was that he was not demoralizing the American forces by printing such cartoons. And Malden tried to explain that it made troops feel better to see that, you know, their circumstances were reflected accurately. Um, but Patton said to stay away from him <laughs> and his territory and, and to, you know, rethink about the types of cartoons that he, he was making. Uh, but Malden ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize for his wartime cartoons. Well, he had the um, last so laugh there.
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, let, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the important journalism that was done. Uh, the Women's Army Corps was maligned. And uh, so there were a, a group of, of women who wrote their stories and defended their importance to the war effort.
8: Yes. Um, Unfortunately, there was a rumor that circulated on the home front that the Women's Army Corps was basically the Army's way of providing prostitutes uh, for male soldiers, which was absolutely false. Um, But this did a lot of damage um, to the image of the women who were in the military. And so they took to creating their own publications to show that they were doing very important work. Um, I mean, they were test pilots. They they did amazing work um, with the medical uh, field. Um, They were in combat zones and many women uh, died. They were in zones of danger. Um, And so they used these periodicals to, to herald their achievements and to show that they were doing serious work.
1: You also write about uh, in the publication Yank, a letter that was written to Yank by a black soldier doing army business who was refused service at a Louisiana lunchroom. You know, elaborate, please, on, on what was in his letter.
8: Yeah. So he wrote a letter to Yank saying after he was refused service at this Louisiana lunchroom because of the color of his skin. Um, and he was in full uniform. He said he watched a group of German POWs come into the lunchroom and he watched them as they were seated and as they were served meals and allowed to smoke and relax and enjoy themselves. And he had to watch from the window of the kitchen um, as this happened. And so he wrote a letter to Yank asking uh, if the magazine could please let him know what he was fighting for and what other black troops were fighting for, because The army was telling them they were fighting for democracy, but they were experiencing such grave inequality. And this letter, because it was produced in Yank, um, over 10 million soldiers ended up reading it. And this created a dialogue across the entire world, Um, everywhere that Yank was printed, where other troops wrote in and commented about what they thought they were fighting for. And there were white troops who fought alongside black troops in combat zones, saying that they were not fighting for inequality. And they saw the incredible work that black troops were doing in combat and that they were, you know, they thought it was disgraceful the way that this soldier was treated in Louisiana. Uh, And many troops said that they did not want to return to the United States if that was the sort of thing that was going to continue, because that was not why they were in a uniform, fighting thousands of miles away from home.
1: Molly, we're getting a little short on time, but I did want you to detail the importance of the 42nd Division's account of the liberation of Dachau and um, what that reporting of what they saw, what that meant to our understanding of the Holocaust.
8: Well, when the 42nd Division liberated Dachau, because they always were producing newspapers, it was their tradition uh, for years, they had their journalists with them. And so the journalists documented what they saw. They had a photographer who took photographs and they had an artist who was sketching um, the things that they saw. And that night, um, the journalists were asked to produce a newspaper that would be printed and distributed to everyone in the 42nd division. And uh, they did that. And it's one of the most moving and important contemporaneous accounts of the liberation of of a concentration camp. Um, It is absolutely incredible, the details that those journalists captured. And when you read it, you can see that they really wanted to be the ones to tell what it was like because they were the ones that liberated it. They did not want civilian journalists to come in you know, a few days later and then publish an account of what it looked like days after it was liberated. And so these troops not only printed um, their observations for each other, but the newspaper itself said that it was supposed to be read by at least two to three men before it was mailed home. Um, So this was uh,
1: uh, incredibly powerful journalism. You have so many instances of this in the war of words, how America's GI journalists battled censorship and propaganda to help win World War Two. Molly Manning, the author of the book. Thank you, Molly, for being with us. It's Air Talk on L.A. 89.3.
0: Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series From Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at NortonSimon.org.
4: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
1: It's AirTalk on la 89.3. A very good Monday morning to you. I want to wish a very happy birthday to our own Evelyn Bocanegra, who's technical director on the program today and, uh, as always, does such an incredible job We wish her a very happy birthday, a very valuable part of our team. Uh, We are scheduled to bring you further details about the damage to Interstate 10 south of downtown Los Angeles. As we learn more, we'll be sharing it with you. We've heard that there's due to be a regional uh, Caltrans news conference downtown sometime this hour. And if that's the case, we will be bringing that to you at the very least. I'll give you an update on the details of what's shared uh, during the course of the news conference, but we begin this hour with a wild recall election in the Orange County city of Santa Ana. This was a recall that was launched by the police union in Santa Ana against council member Jesse Lopez, but that's only the start of all the wild stuff that's happened there. Tomorrow was the last day to vote in that election, but our LAS senior correspondent covering Orange County, Jill Replogle, is with us Jill, this has so many different twists and turns. Just kind of walk us through what's happened.
9: Yeah. So the recall election was initially organized uh, based on the current district boundary boundaries. So redistricting happened as it did in a lot of cities after the 2020 census. Um, and the boundary shifted a little bit and the population of Santa Ana also shifted. And um the uh, So the recall organizers collected signatures from the district that they thought was uh, Jesse Lopez's district. They collected the amount of signatures they thought was uh, the right amount to qualify for the ballot. Uh, they, you know, went through the Santa Ana City Clerk, who is in charge of that election, um, and basically, you know, got all, all the way up to sending out ballots before Bob Page, the Orange County Registrar of Voters, Realized, um, you know, after ballots had already been sent out, that they should have actually been using the district boundaries from when Councilmember Lopez was elected, and so that has uh, caused a, a lot of problems.
1: Well, and and as you write in your story on L.A.ist. Bob Page, the registrar for Orange County, his office is just administering the, the election on behalf of the city of Santa Ana. The decision, as you just said, for you know, what district boundaries to use for the purposes of the recall election, that was um, the city clerk's decision, not the county registrar's decision.
9: Yeah, and you know, the experts that I've spoken with, they say this is established in California law that that the original district boundaries from when the official was elected should be used, but the problem doesn't come up often enough in enough places to be sort of top of everybody's mind. So. Basically, this one slipped, but there's also in Santa Ana the particular case that when they adopted the new district boundaries, their ordinance says that they go into effect immediately. So for any type of election that after the I think it was starting with the November 2022 general election and anything afterwards, and that contradicts state law. So that's part okay. of the problem. Jill,
1: I'm so sorry I need to break in, break in. We take you to Caltrans district headquarters downtown. Uh, I did want to go back to the segment with Jill Replogle right before we interrupted Jill to bring you that live news conference. She was talking about this recall election in Santa Ana where Councilmember Jesse Lopez uh, is the target of a recall campaign. Tomorrow's the last day to vote in that election. What we didn't get to is that last week, a judge determined that even though the wrong uh, borders for the district were used, the current district, instead of what it had been when Lopez was elected to the council, even with that, the judge determined that the election should go forward. That doesn't necessarily mean there won't be legal challenges to whatever the result is of the election, but at least least it can go forward. And Councilmember Lopez is encouraging uh, her supporters to fill out provisional ballots uh, so that perhaps they be count, uh, counted even if they were not sent ballots because they're no longer part of her district. It's Air Talk on L.A.S. 89.3. When we come back, we'll talk about the history of uh, the blimp hangars, the massive structures in Tustin, one of which has largely burned. In fact, the fire restarted over the weekend in that north hangar. But we'll talk about the history, why they were constructed, what purpose they've served, and how they've been used since the end of World War II. It's Air Talk on L.A. It's 89.3. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry just reminding you that LAS.com has a variety of resources available and up-to-the-minute information about the closure of Interstate 10 between Alameda and the East L.A. Interchange, uh, updates on what's happening with the detours in the area, public transit options, Everything that's happening there so that you have the kind of guide you need to be able to work around what, uh, of course, is a huge impact on Southern California transportation. Also want to mention that we have information at las.com about school closures in Tustin. Those closures continuing today because of the restart of a fire in the north hangar there uh, of the former Marine Corps air station last week. An intense fire burned releasing asbestos and and heavy metals uh, into the air and so they need to determine what has fallen on those schools and if it's safe for children to return. But speaking of those two massive hangars that were built in 1942 to be able to house blimps used in the war effort, on today's Southern California History segment that we do every Monday, we look at the history of the hangars. And with us from the Orange County Historical Society, local historian and president of the organization, Chris Jepson. Chris, thank you very much for being with us today.
10: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Larry.
1: First, Thanks first, first question is your 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 emotions about seeing the North Hangar burn and uh, the the tremendous history that was lost. Yeah, it, it
10: is so sad, and uh, you know, all of us who have lived in Orange County, really, in the past four generations, it's just been part of our landscape. It's been a landmark. These these two hangars. Um, uh even if you're looking at an aerial photo or you're you're flying into to John Wayne Airport you you see those hangars and you know you're home you know that's uh it's uh, it's just something we we kind of steer by and have known all our lives and uh they are remarkable buildings and i the the sense i get from uh from everyone i talk to here is is just uh one of sadness sometimes anger people trying to Uh, figure out why this happened, but, uh, you know, the answer is we, we don't know yet.
1: Well I'd love to hear from listeners who have lived in Orange County maybe you grew up there the hangars have just been a, a you know a constant uh, presence in in your growing up or living in Orange County I'd love to hear your thoughts about the historic hangars that we talk about in this segment today we're at 866 893 5722 that's 866 893 5722 you can also email us your memories or or Uh, some of the experiences very recently that you've had revolving around the hangars at AT atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. So Chris, explain to us what important role these hangars played in the war effort in World War
10: II. Uh, Well, they were uh, built as part of our coastal defense system here in Southern California uh, which really did range the whole, uh, the whole coast here. And um, it, uh, the idea was we were going to have blimps that patrolled the coast. They could keep an eye out for uh, Japanese aircraft or, uh, to some degree, submarines um, coming uh, toward our coast. And these hangars, each one could house six large blimps inside it. Uh, fully inflated, so these were enormous buildings um, built in in like I say only six months to build these buildings. Um, that gives you an idea of the uh, importance they were given at the time.
1: It's incredible to think in six months they built twin 17 stories high more than 1000 foot long structures um 300 feet wide i mean it's just so three football fields wide to to think of the size have you had a chance to be inside one of them chris
10: i was lucky enough to be in the north hangar back in 2013 so yeah it it is uh it, <laughs> It's hard to wrap your brain around what you're seeing when you're in a place like that. It is so enormous. You know, our, our brains, when we're at some place like uh, you know, uh, so any any large area, we always look for visual cues. You know, well, there's a door over there, so I know how far away that is based on how tall doors are. I understand that. Or there's a fireplug down there, and I understand because that fireplug looks that big. That's what that that space is between me and the fire fire plug your brain in in these hangars cannot grasp that it doesn't matter if there's a door or a fire plug it it just it it overwhelms your ability to believe that you are in a building that large these are the largest freestanding wood structures in the world um there are a few of them left obviously the uh this is what they're calling the south Hangar is uh, still there and intact and there are a couple uh, a couple more as you go on up uh, in the north of california but um that's it these are uh, pretty remarkable and they are i mean it's uh, certainly a testament to uh to engineering and uh and, and real landmark sense, too.
1: I'm amazed they got the materials. You know, during the war, so many materials were insured, but obviously they prioritized this. I mean, even the metal doors, which are so massive um, at the end of the the hangar, um, you just think about all the materials used in something this big.
10: Right. Well, and it is interesting. That's why these buildings are wood buildings, is because all the steel was spoken for. And so I'm sure the ideal would have been to to put in some sort of steel framework, but um, that really wasn't available to them.
1: We're talking with historian Chris Jepson, who's president of the Orange County Historical Society. Again, if you have memories of the Marine Corps Air Station in Tustin's two massive hangars, you want to talk about the place in the community that the hangars hold, we're at 866-893-5722. With us as well is retired Marine colonel who was stationed at the Tustin Air Base between 1983 and 1995, Brian Delahut. Brian, thank you very much for being with us. What was it like to work on that base with these massive structures?
5: Uh, Larry, they were absolutely incredible. I mean, I can remember my first experience in checking into um, the training squadron and walking into a building that I had seen as a young boy, but never having had the presence to actually go inside. And it was just absolutely incredible.
1: And uh, did um, your co-workers who were there, uh, those serving on the base, were they told the story of the background? Did everybody know what the hangars had been constructed for?
5: Well, I think, you know, uh, when when I checked in in the early 80s, um, the base was actually called LTA, Lighter Than Air. It was Marine Corps Air Station, Tustin, LTA. And, um, and we all knew that the buildings had been built for um, the blimp hangers um, or for the use of blimps. But, you know, of course, the Marine Corps repurposed them and made them into helicopter hangars. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that we really um, appreciated uh, what the hangar was initially built for because that was our working space and, you know, we were trying to make uh, make accommodations to be able to use it for helicopters.
1: What kind of shape were they in when, when you worked there? Because, you know, they're already 40 years old by the time you arrived on the base. Were, were they well-maintained or did they have problems? No, I think, uh,
5: you know, the Marine Corps were good stewards and uh, they were very well-maintained at the time. Um, I... I don't think that there was any issues whatsoever with any of the maintenance on the buildings. Um, And I think that, you know, we, again, as good stewards and understanding that this was our home, took good care of them.
1: What were the helicopters that were there in the hangars? What were they used for during your tenure on the base?
5: Uh, Well, for troop transport, uh, I was with uh, HMM 268. And that's a Marine Medium uh, Helicopter Squadron, and uh, we flew CH-46s. Which, again, uh, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, how old the CH-46 was when it was finally retired, it was over 60 years old. So again, you know, um, the hangars provided a home for those uh, helicopters to uh, to be stored in and to be worked on and to uh, to provide spaces for the Marines that were supporting them within each one of the squadrons that were there.
1: How staffed was the base at the time? For the more than decade you were there, how heavily staffed was it?
5: Oh, there were quite a few. I would say there were several thousand of us that were that were located at, uh, at Marine Corps Air Station Tustin.
1: And, and was there housing on the base or did people live off base?
5: Uh, there was housing um, on the base, but it's, there was also housing over at El Toro. So a lot of people lived over at El Toro. Um, I know when I checked in, I actually lived in Irvine and um, in an apartment, but um, because there was no space available at the time,
1: All right. Let's take a listener call from Nick in Santa Ana. Nick, very good to have you with us. Your memories of the twin hangars at the former Tustin Marine Corps Air Station.
11: Well, Larry, my my uncle had a tomato farm right across the street from the entrance of the base. And he had that farm from the 1940s uh, through the 70s. That was on Irvine Company land. He leased there. But he was there when that built, uh, base was built. Wow! And and those hangars were put in. Now I was a little younger. I I and my cousins uh, worked uh, with my uncle on that ranch when we were young in our uh, preteen and teen years back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. And so we have a very strong recollection of those facilities when it was an active base. Although our greatest recollection of the activities there, the military, the daily comings and goings, uh, we observed, uh, you know, involved in the farming that we were doing uh, close by. Uh, I don't have a great recollection. Uh, I have a recollection of blimps, but not a lot of activity there. I remember a lot of helicopter activity, which was occurring in the years following
2: which Brian
1: which was just telling us about Nick did your uncle talk with you at all about the the project of building those two structures within six months you know he, you know he really didn't he was a he was
11: a, I think like so many agricultural people I that a few words okay and yeah. and he did not in any great detail what I do remember uh, because again the farmhouse, which we operated at was directly across the street, Red Hill and in that area today, directly across the street from the entrance to the base. And on regular occasions, the commandant of the base would be invited to lunch or dinner uh, that my aunt would prepare for him. So they had a very, uh, close social relationship with the base. And that's nice. Uh, that is my uncle did, but I don't remember any specific details being discussed about the actual
3: building.
1: Nick, when you drive by that area now, um, that's got it's gotta be hard to wrap your head around how different it is from when you were working on your uncle's farm.
11: <laughs> well, hard to wrap my head around it. Well, you know, I'm a lifelong orange County and, and, uh, and uh, you know when we were out there as young people in the fifties and the sixties, uh, that was all open land. Not just the area right around those facilities, which have been fenced off for the past number of years, but the whole region. None of that Greater yeah. Tustin Irvine area existed. It was it's nothing but un- agricultural fields.
1: Nick, I have to break, but it's it's. Inc- I have to say for myself, and I don't go back quite as far as you do, but. I still, when when I drive through the areas where all the orange groves were and, you know, what I remember from 1970s Orange County, I, I just find it so difficult to reconcile what I see now uh, from what it was. We're going to continue our look at the importance historically and culturally of the twin hangars built for blimps, later used by helicopters by the Marine Corps, at the former Tustin Marine Corps Air Station, And of course, the North Hangar, Hangar 1, with such extensive damage, whatever's left will will have to be demolished. But uh, a fire kicked up again uh, from the embers of the fire last week. And so that's led Tustin Schools to be closed for a second day today they're doing evaluation of the schools to see because of asbestos and heavy metals that were ejected during the fire uh, to see uh, if it's safe for kids to come back tomorrow. We'll continue with historian Chris Jepson, who's president of the Orange County Historical Society, and Brian Delahut, retired Marine colonel, who was stationed at Tustin from 1983 to 1995. So these hangars were part of his daily life. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mansell. So good to have you with us. Every Monday, we talk Southern California history, and we had several listeners who suggested that. We talk about the history of the twin blimp hangers in Tustin, the north one of which has been largely destroyed in fires, started last week and then uh, revived over the weekend. That's what we're doing. We have some wonderful callers with firsthand experience working on the base. Please hang on. We'll get to as many of you as we can to hear your stories of what these hangars represented to you. Let's talk next with uh, Janiqua in San Diego, I understand you grew up on the base where the hangars were?
12: Yeah, Larry, that's absolutely right. Yeah, my family, so my father, actually, he's a retired Marine, but he was a crew chief for HMH 361, which was based there in, I believe it was Hangar 1. Um, and he was a crew chief for the CH-53 helicopters. So they were there for some time. He was there from 85 until he retired in 93. Uh, Prior to that, they were at El Toro. But I grew up in base housing. We were first on the back gate side, which was the uh, Irvine side. And then we moved, um, our family grew, and we moved to larger housing on the front gate side, which was over there off of Red Hill. And so um, during that entire time, my dad was there in Hangar One. I remember going to visit him uh, at his office there in the hangar. And then you know, when his squadron would have barbecues, they would be, you know, right outside there in the squadron or be either on base housing. But we grew up in the shadow of those those wow. hangars. And if I'm not mistaken, my memory might be a little dusty, but I'm pretty sure that my little ballet group, we had a recital in one of those hangers, too. Wow. Which was really cool. Yeah, it was like a small ballet recital. But, yeah. you know, our instructor would pick up kids, you know, on base housing, and so my, my little group of... Uh, folks that I did ballet with, we were all base kids, you know, and so yeah, and so it just was wild. You know, we were already sad. One of the reasons my family is down in San Diego is because that squadron, when the base closed, uh, it was relocated to Miramar, which is where, although my father's retired, he still, he works at Miramar, and so we're still, we stayed close to base, to the military base, Mm
7: -hmm. but
12: um, yeah, it's just, you know, we were sad when the base closed, and then to see this, and when we got word of it in our family chat, it was stunning.
1: Well, was I, I think sunny. for all of us, you know, it's hit hard because it's just—it's such a a part of the view of Orange County. But for you living there, on both sides of of the hangars, so what's what's it been like for you emotionally to see Hangar One go up in flames? You know, really
12: sad. Um, like I said, you know, it—we grew up in the shadow of them. My father worked there, so I have very distinctive and clear memories of of those office spaces in there, and even just walking in. So the offices were along the side, obviously. And then in the center, it was that wide open space. And I remember, I can see it clearly in my head, you know, looking up. And it just seemed like it went up forever,
7: yeah, <laughs> you know, as, especially as a kid. Yeah.
12: And just being overwhelmed by that space. But then, too, you know, you know, my older brother, he made uh, models. And so we have even a model here in our house um, that my father was given when he was reti- when he retired of a ch. of a a ch-53 helicopter so you know we very much it was you know in our family and and things like that and so um we're history buffs and so you know we always knew the base was called lta because it's lighter than air it was built for the blimps, and sometimes the goodyear blimp or other blimps would come in um would be there the air show well air shows were over at uh, el foro but you know just being out on the flight
7: deck and,
12: and all yeah we just it still, I think, um, it's not really sank in. Um, I so being that I live in Escondido, I've not seen anything on the news. I saw um, just a, a story from, I think it was KTLA, and an image, but it still is not really sank in. And yeah, I think yeah, it
1: may take may take a while. That
12: area and, Jim, right? And this when you see the skyline and it's not there, I think that's probably when it will sink in because, you know, I even worked a couple of years ago in Irvine. And I remember driving through that with my first time being back in, like, decades. Probably and,
1: brought b- so- back a bunch of memories. Janique. Well, I'm so sorry. I've got other folks I, I need to get on. I so appreciate you calling in, and especially since you lived on the base and that your father was there for so long. We really appreciate you sharing that experience. Eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. Jimmy in downtown Los Angeles, I understand you were a Marine Corps sergeant. Did you visit that base?
6: Oh, several times. Uh, I was uh, I was stationed at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro, which, of course, isn't there anymore. And sh- like she just said, it was moved to Miramar, which they called the Top Gun. But well, I remember when I went to uh, the Tustin Air Base, it was basically a parking lot for helicopters. <laughs> and... Um, but what was, the, what was really interesting was the fighter pilots would fly through the hangars and do loop-de-loops inside of them. They were so big.
1: Wait, 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 wait. They and would they, fly through the hangars?
6: Yeah, they flew through them. Wow. It's the fighter jets. And they would do a loop-de-loop. You know, that's over, the, over your head, under your tail. And then they would do barrel rolls just for fun. Brian Brian Delahut
1: do you remember that from your time on base
6: yes I was no Brian I was asking uh, Brian our guest
1: Brian you know hold 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 that thought Brian do you remember that
5: no I never remembered uh, anybody flying into the hangars
1: that seems incredibly dangerous
5: yeah I don't think that it, it necessarily would have happened uh where I never heard of anybody actually flying into the hangar itself. So um, partly because the doors were always closed.
1: All right, well, Jimmy, uh, thank you for for the call. Let's talk with T in Irvine. T, you're on Air Talk.
13: Hi, Larry. How are you?
1: Good. Good. Thanks. Your your memories of the hangars.
13: Uh, well, um, I actually I'm from Atlanta, um, and I moved here in the early 2000s, and I was living in Anaheim for two years. Then I moved to Irvine, and this was back in 2009. And my apartment was right there at Jamboree in Alton, so I could see the hangers from my bedroom window. And this was before they built all the apartments, you know, your Lowe's, your TJ Maxx, and all those stores that surround the hangers now. And I was telling the lady before, um, it's funny, one of the memories I had was my niece that came out because – She had auditioned for a Michael Jackson video. This was before, well, this was after he had died, and they shot one of the videos there at those hangars. And, you know, I actually live, like I say, in downtown Los Angeles now, but I have a storage still in Irvine, which is where I am right now. Um, So I'm constantly down in Orange County. And it's just strange that, you know, one hangar is now gone. I actually went over Saturday when I came down and I took pictures, it's just unbelievable, you know, how basically it looks as if it has basically everything is caved in, except for the concrete structures on the end. It looks like they are holding those up. Um, but it's just really sad, you know, that
8: yeah, they— yeah.
13: I've been in Orange County for a while, even though I'm in L.A. now for the last three years. But it's just strange not to have those there because, you know, it is a part of the community. It's a landmark.
1: T, do do you recall what Michael Jackson song they were doing the video from in the hangar? This
13: this was the video they shot right after he died. Oh, Um, after he died. It was, um, I believe it was that behind the mask. Okay. Um, album the that one that they
1: did, it was, it was essentially a concert dedicated to him. Yeah. I remember yeah, yeah. that film. Yeah. Yeah. T, thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Let me go back uh, to Orange County Historical Society President Chris Jepsen. There were quite a few different things that were filmed there. David Burbank says that J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek, used the as as part of the shuttle base at the beginning of the film.
10: Yeah, in two thousand nine. That was uh that's one of its many uh screen appearances. I, I think the earliest one I know about is uh actually all the way back to nineteen forty five. There was a movie called This Man's Navy, appropriately enough about uh a guy who was a uh blimp pilot for the Navy. Um, they, they shot the the Hindenburg, uh the the movie uh um sort of docudrama about that in 1975 and then and then the Waltons followed up with a uh an episode where John Boy sees the Hindenburg exploding again at Tustin wow. LPA base um I think Jag and the X-Files have had uh episodes there and uh I think one of the Austin Powers sequels uh, had some some scenes set there. I think I think probably most Californians who aren't Orange Countyans may know the the hangars best though from Huell Hauser's California Gold. He gave the dedicated a whole episode to the uh, the base there.
1: All right, and that's a, those are available online to see, by the way. We'll continue our conversation with Chris Jepson, historian and president of the Orange County Historical Society, Brian Delahutte, who's a retired Marine colonel, was stationed at Tustin for more than a decade, starting in 1983. We're taking listener calls, and I'll share some more emails that we've received from listeners remembering these Tustin hangers. Thankfully, the South Hanger, Hangar 2, still stands. We'll be back in just a minute. Support
0: for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series from Canvas to Screen, capturing the drama and beauty of some of history's most celebrated works of art. Films include Metropolis by Fritz Lang, Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, and Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Screenings are at 4:30 p.m. on consecutive Saturdays now through March 30th. More information at nortonsimon.org.
4: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting One of the Good Ones. The ultimate family showdown is on in the world premiere of this new comedy commissioned by the Tony Award-winning theater. When the perfect Latina daughter brings her boyfriend home to meet the parents, her family's biases and preconceptions are put on full display. Meet your new favorite family in this laugh-out-loud, heartfelt story from Gloria Calderon Kellett, the co-creator and showrunner of Netflix's One Day at a Time. Now through April 7th, tickets are on sale now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
1: Also, a reminder that at LAS.com, you'll see the very latest details on the closure of Interstate 10. of That a portion of the freeway that's elevated just south of downtown Los Angeles closed indefinitely. Uh, they're trying to determine what needs to be done to stabilize the freeway, if they're going to be able to do that, in fact. Um, Certainly hope it's not going to have to be demolished and rebuilt. But we'll keep you up to date on that, as well as all the public transit and uh, detours all around that closed portion of Interstate 10. Uh, We got some background, by the way, on the video that our listener mentioned, the Michael Jackson song uh, for which the video was made at the hangar. This goes back to 2010. It was, as our listener said, a posthumous release of Michael's song, Hold My Hand, featuring Akon. Uh, and it was released on the album Michael after the passing of Michael Jackson. Let me share some listener comments as we remember about the uh, former Tustin Marine Corps Air Station hangars. Uh, Ed in Studio City said we shot some of the Chevy Reveal commercials there several years ago several days with giant elevator lifts. The stage was built 20 feet in the air. Dellen Fullerton emailed my parents split when I was young. Mom stayed in Stanton. Dad bought one of the first homes in Mission Viejo in 1970. I remember two things when being shuttled between the two. The Disney Matterhorn at Mom's End and the Tustin Hangers at Dad's with almost nothing but strawberry fields in between. Easy way to answer, are we there yet? Sad to see one of these childhood icons gone. Dell, thank you for that. Frank in Mission Viejo says, perhaps too early to ask, but do we know what will happen to the damaged building? On the one hand, be sad to lose such a historic structure. On the other hand, I imagine it would take a great deal of effort and resource to rebuild something rarely used. Frank, I think there's almost nothing left of it. Chris Jepsen, um, do you think anything's going to be saved from Hangar 1?
10: I'd be surprised looking at the condition it's in now. Um, and I know there are some, uh, some environmental concerns as well about, you know, these things were built in the 40s uh, and the materials are... Uh, some of them uh, are are cause for concern at this point. Uh, once it's torn asunder like this, um, yeah. there's things like asbestos exposed and stuff like that. So um, I would be very surprised if that if that hangar were somehow partially reconstructed. Um, what's mean, hang
1: What's hangar two being used for, Chris? Well, at the
10: moment, speaking of environmental concerns, that's what's happening there. It's awaiting environmental remediation before the Department of the Navy hands it over to theoretically to the City of Tustin. Is my understanding is the plan, and um, and I don't know that a decision, a firm decision has been made about what will happen to that hangar. But a lot of different forms of adaptive reuse have been talked
5: about over the last okay. twenty years.
1: All right. Well, and I wonder if losing the North Hangar might make um, people uh, cherish the second one all the more, given the loss of, of Hangar One. Ed in OI said, I was stationed there from 57 to 59. I was a crew chief on the helicopters, did a lot of sweeping and cleaning of those hangar floors. Those were good times. That's Ed in OI. Gina in Laguna Hills emailed, I've lived in Orange County for 58 years. The hangars were a significant landmark all through my life. I remember when the Tustin Air Base was still functioning. One of my first jobs was in an office building nearby. Years later, my former photography bosses, Mark and Jerry, used one of the empty hangars as a, phot- a photography camera obscura, and they entered the Guinness Book of World Records. It broke my heart to see Hangar 1 burn down uh duncan and tustin email taught my kids to ride their bikes later drive their cars in the empty streets in the shadows of the hangers at the base feels like a heavy negative feeling that one burned down depressing my thanks to my guests chris and brian have a great day hey it's brian the host of the how to la podcast how about we go to the movies Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone.
0: I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting
2: with everyone else around you. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.